Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, a binge reader and a dedicated napper whose favorite season is summer and whose favorite wine is red. And I'm Eliza Rosenberry. I prefer a dry white wine, and I love to cozy up at home on a chilly evening with a great read. And I actually hate napping. I'm like an anti-napper. No. Yeah. We must convert you. (laughs) Napping is awesome. I find it so disruptive. (laughs) On today's show, Spies, Traitors, and an Infamous Couple. It's 1941. A beautiful young society reporter is sent to the Bahamas, a haven of spies and traitors, to investigate the governor and his wife, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Meanwhile, in the early 1900s, a German baroness's love affair with an English soldier takes unusual twists and turns as the decades go on. But first, we present to you The Golden Hour Abridged. The Golden Hour weaves the stories of two remarkable women set a generation apart. In 1941, Lulu Randolph is a young American journalist sent to the Bahamas to report on the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, a.k.a. Prince Edward, and the woman he abdicated the throne for, Wallace Simpson. Back in 1900, Elfrida von Kleist is a young German baroness whose family sends her to a Swiss clinic to treat her postpartum depression. Past and present come together in this extraordinary tale of espionage, murder, a historic fire, love, and courage. So what do you think of the book, Tavia? (laughs) (laughs) True confession. I am a huge Beatrice Williams fan. I have read every single one of her books. I've even read short stories she's written in other anthologies. Whoa. I adore her. Um, The first novel I ever read by her was A Hundred Summers. And after that, I just had to find every book she's ever written and just binge them. (laughs) There's something about these books. You get one. And I just had to read all the other ones. I totally see that. This was my first Beatrice book, but I totally understand the idea of needing to read everything after the first one. One thing she does that is so cool is she has these characters that make cameos in her other novels. It feels like she's creating a little world because the characters rise and fall throughout the other novels. That's so cool. It just makes the binge so satisfying because you're like, and there's Julie. <laughs> Were there characters in this book that you recognized from other books? Well, I don't want to spoil Oh, okay. <laughs> for the readers. But yes. Okay. <laughs> and the main char- one of the main characters in The Golden Hour is such a paragon of a Beatrice Williams character. Lulu is just strong and she's smart-mouthed and she sort of flits around and observes everything and pulls little levers from the background. Yeah. I just really enjoyed spending time with Lulu. Yeah, she's really fun and tough and ambitious and super smart. It was really fun to to spend time with Lulu, definitely. You know, not only was this my first Beatrice book, but I actually don't read a ton of historical fiction at all. So for me, it was it was fun to dip into the golden hour because I got to enjoy some of the historical setting and um, even just some of the little details. Like, what was it like to fly in an airplane from Miami to the Bahamas in 1941? Um, that stuff, those details were really fun to read. It's funny you say that because I don't consider myself a reader of historical fiction either, but I read so much historical fiction. <laughs> and I always come away with it from one there's always one historical nugget in the book that blows my mind. Yeah. And in this book, it was the fire. Yes. The, the, and the, the simmering racial tension in Nassau, the Bahamas. I, 
I don't know anything about that part of, I don't know anything about the history of that part of the world. And it was just such a zinger for me to to witness this sort of fiery embodiment of of these tensions that were going on. Yeah, it was such an interesting historical moment. And it was fun to read about World War II, but not have most of the books set in Europe. I feel like normally when you read about World War II, it's like all France, all England, all Germany. But it was interesting to be sort of far away from there. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, Another thing that I loved about The Golden Hour was sort of right out of the gate, it dives into one of the other main characters, Elfrida. Her family has sent her away to the sanatorium because she's experiencing postpartum depression. And it was so interesting to read how they would have treated her at that time and the stigma associated with this depression that she was experiencing. It was really uh, interesting to read about how mental health would have been treated or were not treated in that time. This was in, I guess, in 1900. I don't know if you noticed, but the dedication in the book is to people who suffer from depression. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a really nice touch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like, you know, as always, I love I love a book with complex, strong female protagonists. And this one had two of those characters. So I wish we could make a resolution. Only books about strong females. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many good ones to choose from. I know. Who knows what we what we will read next. Yes. So are you ready to talk to Beatrice? Oh, my God. I'm dying to ask her questions about this book. So many questions. This is going to be great. But first, a quick reminder that we love hearing from you, our listeners. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and post your own questions for the authors who appear on this show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after our discussion with the author for a sneak peek of the audiobook. So Beatrice, welcome to the Book Club Girls podcast. We are so excited to have you here. This is going to be awesome. It is my pleasure. I'm so delighted to be on the show. Excellent. So we have a ton of questions from readers. People were just so excited to have a chance to ask you about the book. Beatrice's Williams' portrait of the Bahamas during World War II and the infamous Duke and Duchess of Windsor is a sweeping family saga about love and sacrifice. We solicited questions from fans Mm -hmm. on our Facebook group and on Mm -hmm. your Facebook page for this episode, um, for this interview. So we've got a lot of great questions for you Um, to kick things off. Much of the golden hour takes place in World War II era Bahamas, where the governor at the time was the Duke of Windsor, Mm -hmm. as the former king of England who abdicated the throne to marry the American Wallace Simpson. So Diane wrote in and said, were you always interested in Wallace Simpson? You know, I I was always aware of the story, and it's certainly a fascinating story, and it gets woven into a lot of sort of our narratives of that sort of interwar mm-hmm. period. It's sort of like the classic story of the king who gives up his throne for the woman he loves. I had kind of ambivalent feelings about Wallace uh, herself. Not that I thought she was, you know, the, the classic sort of harpy, you know, um, but or social climber. I mean, she, yes, she was a social yeah. climber. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, the world sort of uh, you know, that's what kind of drives the world is people trying to improve their their social position. It's a very human instinct. I think to me what was both, I, I want to almost say off-putting yet fascinating at the same time is that I mean, what we know about Wallace is kind of like the most, the th- we think about her jewels and her clothes. We think of her, I mean, in very sort of shallow terms. Yeah. And uh, I think, how can somebody create such a mystique and yet be so kind of fundamentally shallow? I mean, she never really did anything 
with all this fame and wealth, we don't think of any major sort of charitable. And of course, this was a different era, obviously. But, you know, it's not like she sort of took what had happened to her and sort of turned it into a positive for anyone other than herself. And Mm. she actually died quite miserable. So, you know, I had never, I, I, you know, it was certainly not, she was not somebody I've been that obsessed with um, because I feel like there's not a lot of there there. On the other hand, the whole idea of the two of them in the Bahamas during the Second World War with all this intrigue surrounding them because, of course, there were all these whispers of Nazi sympathy mm-hmm. and they had gone on this tour of Germany very soon after they got married. And there's this you know, picture of her, famous picture of her grinning, this huge grin on her face as she's meeting Hitler. They were quite a, sort of admirers uh, of the Nazi system. So I thought this was kind of a neat thing to explore because as novelists, we look for stories with lots of friction, you know. Yeah. And if you've got this couple with... I mean, nobody ever questions their loyalty to the crown exactly, but it's not like they're sort of, you know, they're they're in it because of England, not because they believe strongly in, you know, defeating Nazism. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're surrounded by spies. And then I found out there was this famous murder mystery that took place while they were there, which, of course, adds to all the intrigue. And you told the story not from... Wallace's perspective, no, but from not. Lulu's perspective, yes. which makes it a little more interesting. I yeah. Think. Well, a couple reasons for that. Number one, I don't actually like to, and and some auth- obviously authors do it superbly well. But uh, I'm I'm not that interested in in sort of taking a real historical figure as my sort of viewpoint character. I think it's interesting to. Uh, put historical figures in, you know, in in the novel. I mean, there's two reasons. Number one is that my imagination is always getting the better of me. Uh, So (laughs) I've always got a larger story I want to tell. And sometimes this is going to sound a little bit, you know, slipshod, but sometimes the facts get in the way of the story. Mm, You know, know, I think it was Albert Camus said that fiction is the lie we tell to get to the truth. And I think that's (laughs) so true. You know, sometimes we get so obsessed with all these historical facts and getting that person exactly right that we sort of forget that there's a larger story we're trying to tell. Otherwise, why not just write a nonfiction biography, right? Uh, so for me, I mean, and, and, and the other thing is just authenticity. I think it's very hard uh, and in some ways problematic, certainly for me, to get inside somebody's head and give voice to them when obviously they have no uh, input into that. It's, it's my interpretation. Uh, and, you know, you want to do justice to somebody who is an actual historical figure. For me, it was just easier to take a fictional character uh, and and use her as my viewpoint character. One of the things that I loved that you did with Wallace Simpson, <clears throat> and this is even on the cover, was when you, um, you had her give one of her dresses to Lulu. Yes. And and that's the dress that Lulu's wearing yes. on the cover. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to ruin it for the readers and what you know the purpose of that dress. But, you know, you say that she never really did anything for anyone else. And in fact, in the novel, you give her that moment to yes. be generous. Yes. Well, what was interesting about this period of time, they actually were, you know, and, and, and Willis could be very generous uh, on an individual level. One of the most interesting pieces of research I uncovered was a memoir written by uh, the woman who was her personal secretary while she was in the Bahamas, who was an American woman from, I think, Mamaroneck. Uh, and she just like answered an ad, you know, and 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 ended up as the personal secretary uh, to the Duke and Duchess. Uh, Mamaroneck. I know, exactly. <laughs> no, she was well, she was like from Mount Holyoke and she was well connected. It was mm-hmm. sort of, you know, an insider uh, deal. But, you know, Wallace was actually 
actually quite generous to servants and to employees because guess what? You know, you want these people to be loyal to you. And and so, I mean, whether it was self-serving or whether she was really being generous, I don't know. I mean, I, she, I don't think she was a terrible person at all. I think she was quite self-centered. Um, but that doesn't, that there's plenty of room, you know, within being self-centered to care about others. You just sort of put yourself first. But um, but but while they were there in the Bahamas, their larger goal was, you know, they, they wanted a little more prestige. I mean, they were kind of stuck in this backwater uh, for kind of misbehavior, really. And and so they saw this as a trial, a test. Uh, maybe if they did really well uh, here in the Bahamas, they would get something more prestigious, like the mm. governorship of, say, Canada, you know, or <laughs> Australia, which has a much nicer ring to it. Uh, so they did all these good works. You know, the, the, the Duchess founded all these maternity clinics that are still there today. There was a certain, uh, I was about to say paternalistic, but maybe maternalistic mm-hmm. uh, attitude. I mean, she was very much like, well, you know, the natives don't know how to take care of their own children, mm-hmm. so we'll show them how to do it, right. that sort of thing. But, you know, it did do a lot of good from a humanitarian perspective. Uh, she founded, uh, you know, she was very active in the Red Cross and started this canteen for the soldiers and did all this sort of charity work associated with the Red Cross. So, very, very active uh, in the islands, uh, you know, uh, this sort of the charity, you know, world associated with the war effort. Uh, they actually were working very hard to impress, you know, the, the the folks back at Whitehall and get a better assignment, which, of course, they never did. They never did. Yeah. So from its opening pages of The Golden Hour, you established two separate narratives. One is, you know, during World War II and the other one is in the 1900s, which helped form this kind of larger trajectory of social and cultural transformation in the early 20th Mm -hmm. century. But one of our readers, Lori, wants to know if you were surprised by anything you found in your research. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I like to say I'm not really tend to be surprised by stuff I find in my research because... You know, having written during this period of time, this very sort of fascinating, tumultuous first half of the 20th century, you know, I sort of a very strong sense for really what what, what are the social and cultural uh, agents of change going on uh, during any particular decade. And uh, I guess what, uh, you know, what, what I focus on is that, I mean, you know, to me, uh, the sort of dates and times and places and events are kind of the setting and the backdrop for the larger story I want to tell, which is, wow, how did we become the people we are today uh, from this you know, starting point or this, this waypoint uh, in yeah. this year or that year? You know, I think most of the surprises, because most of the more technical research uh, came during that Bahamas period. Uh, you know, the whole Harry Oaks murder, I think, uh, just learning there was this uh, sort of notorious and yet still unsolved murder uh, that took place. And it was something and there actually has been stuff written about it and and so on. But it's not that well known uh, for such a notorious act and having these, you know, famous people associated with it. So I think that whole Harry Oaks murder was the most kind of surprising thing. I hadn't I kind of heard a little about it, but, you know, I didn't realize what a big deal it was and that it's still unsolved and that there was all this sort of cover up and fall guy stuff going on there. That was really fascinating. It just inspires all these conspiracy theories. Like maybe we don't know about it because the crown doesn't want us to. Yeah. Well, they kind of, I mean, you know, you know, it, it, I think one of the reasons I sort of put that little factoid at the beginning was that, gosh, despite their best efforts, they never were given another uh, official appointment in the British Empire. 
you know, nobody actually has ever seriously suggested that the Duke of Windsor was involved in the murder. But let's just say there was a very small sort of, you know, nucleus of people at the top of society. They were they were protecting their own their money and they were doing things that were kind of not really legal uh, in terms of getting trying to get their money out of the country just in mm-hmm. case England lost. I mean, that was treason. And, and you didn't want any of this stuff to kind of get out. And if the person who really did it, obviously his motives for doing it had to do with money. I mean, Harry Oakes was like the wealthiest man in the British Empire. So obviously there's some financial shenanigans going on there. Was the Duke involved? Well, we know that he, you know, he both he and the Duchess were, let's just say money was important to them and (laughs) and keeping that money safeguarded was important. And at that point in time, 1942, 43, uh, you know, things were not looking great for England at that point for for the for the allies, for the British, uh, for the British Empire. So. You know, who's to say they wouldn't have tried to shuffle a little money to Mexico where it would be safe just in case. And But that's treason. Your character Lulu gets a lot of her gossip column fodder from the bar in the Prince George Hotel and from the social circle that surrounds the Duke and Duchess. Um, and as readers, we tend to get attached to some of these minor characters that she interacts with. Pat, one of our Facebook group members, wants to know whatever happened to Jack the bartender. Jack the bartender. So I love him too. Isn't he fantastic? He's the best. And I actually named him after a bartender at a local um, B&B, a little really? inn. I live in Connecticut. We have this great inn nearby, the B and Thistle, with this awesome bartender named Jack. So that I named so my sweet. bartender Jack for Jack. Uh, he doesn't, I don't think he even knows this, but uh, he's awesome. <laughs> Bombshell. Yes, I know. Bombshell Jack. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, what was interesting to me uh, is that sort of in the aftermath of this murder, uh, so many people disappeared. Uh, And if you did any questioning of who the real murderer was, uh, you know, that was a pretty dangerous occupation. Mm -hmm. People literally disappeared. And Jack may or may not be one of those people uh, who disappears. Uh, I think it's important when you're writing a book uh, to um, uh, you have to make a point in a visceral way. It has to count with the reader. They have to form an emotional connection. And sometimes uh, you have to use that for your own, uh, you know, dark writerly purposes. Uh, and Jack was one of those people who got very attached to, but he's also somebody who clearly knows, not just knows a lot, but knows kind of everything, everything. that's going on yeah. on the island. Uh, that's not a good position to be in uh, at, uh, you know, after, in the wake of the Harry Oaks murder. And I'm going to leave it a little bit at that because I don't want to be spoilery here. But uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes we have to do horrible things as novelists. Poor Jack. Poor Jack. <laughs> All right. We'll raise our glasses to Jack. Yes, exactly. Um, So talking about being spoilery, I don't want to be spoilery, but you often pull characters from your other novels into your new one. This is one of the things that I love about your books. You know, I'm like an unabashed fan. Um, So, for example, Julie Schuyler has appeared in most of your books. Yes. So how is the golden hour connected to your previous works, if at all? So um, I'll try to keep this a little concise because, as you know, this is a fairly sprawling world of of characters. The, the Marvel people call it a shared universe. You know. Or, so <laughs> yes. yes um, so way back, I wrote a book called Along the Infinite Sea, which is still you know a, a big favorite of many of my readers. Uh, and there was a character there, a German Baron, uh, and for various reasons, I needed to create some sympathy around this guy because uh, he's very conflicted with what's going on in Germany at the time. Uh, so I and I also needed him to be able to 
to speak English really well. Uh, so I constructed a backstory for him to do to serve both these purposes, sympathy and English speaking. Uh, so he tells my main character early on that, oh, you know, my mother uh, was, uh, you know, my, my father died when I was very young. My mother remarried an Englishman who was the love of her life. Uh, and then he was killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in the First World War. Uh, and they had a baby who was born two months later and um and i did that to create all this sympathy and and then so he would obviously go to england during you know and and go to school there so that's how he got his english but i felt terrible afterward because here was this woman i had given her this very tragic story a very uh challenging life and and so it had always been in the back of my mind that i wanted to explore that more it sounded like uh something that a novel could be built around so that's kind of the the other narrative in this book mm. uh is around this mother her i gave her the name elfrida she is uh a germ and she she i decided she had had um postpartum depression uh, because to me that's that's sort of a, a fascinating issue particularly in the context of you know a hundred years ago yeah uh, so she meets uh, this Englishman uh, and they have a child uh, and the reason I thought it would weave in well because uh, obviously in the Bahamas we have a lot of uh, spying going on there's agents from <laughs> both sides uh, what if you have a man who is half English and half German and possibly uh, has conflicted loyalties. Mm. Uh, and so, of course, Lulu uh, meets and falls in love uh, with a man who is half English and half German. Uh, and that is how those two stories weave together. Uh, but uh, I love, I creating Elfrida, I just, it, it was just one of those stories that poured out of me. Oh my gosh, we're going to talk more about Elfrida, but right now we have to take a quick ad break. This episode of Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by The Summer Country. Lauren Willig takes readers on a sweeping Victorian epic about two sugar plantations in Barbados before and after the abolition of slavery. The Summer Country tells the story of what happens when family secrets begin to unravel and the harsh truth of history challenges the present. It's available now wherever books are sold. And we're back with Beatrice Williams, author of The Golden Hour. Beatrice, one question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast is what is your literary white whale? Meaning like what is the book that has always sort of followed you around but you have never gotten around to reading it? Or what's the book that you have on your nightstand that sort of like <laughs> haunts you every night but you just haven't gotten to it yet? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I, I think like a lot of people at this point, it hasn't haunted me for a while, but it's been haunting me for a few years, especially at the movie, uh, movie is out, is The Goldfinch. I keep starting that book. Uh, and I know one of these days I'm going to have a space of time when I can read the whole thing. But, you know, it's one of those things where something always happens whenever I start this book. <laughs> it distracts me. And then and then I was like, OK, wait, wait, we're back at the museum. Uh, you know, <laughs> wait, what happened again? You know, and then I have to start all over again. So I, it, I guess it's a little bit that for me. But, uh, you know, I, I guess more recently, gosh, I have a bunch of white whales. Yeah. Uh, if we go way back into the past and, you know, books <laughs> that I'm ashamed that I haven't. I mean, obviously, War and Peace, I think that's everyone's white whale. Um, and it's always I, the Russians. I know, I know. It, it gets you know, you really have to set some time aside, yeah. Uh, you know, and and some thought, and and you know, I've got four kids, and I got all these books I'm writing. It is very hard for me to sit down with like 
a seven eight hundred page book and be like, okay, you are my life now, and I will, <laughs> you know, I will. Focus I think on that you. is such a common sentiment. Yes, so, so many people are like, short book, I'm in. Long book, check, I know. Check it out. I know. Yeah. I was actually with my latest one that I, you know, was finishing the copy edits. I was really like, okay, let's trim this down as much as we can. I don't want people to get intimidated by like, look, it's not as long, even as the gold. But even the golden hour is a long book. But you know, I hope that it's engaging enough that people really stay in it. I'm always trying to stay in the plot, in the scene. Uh, I want to come back to Elfrida because I was, um, while we were preparing for this interview with you, you know, one of the things that I noticed that readers picked up a lot was that when, you know, the way that the publisher sort of positioned the book, Lulu is is the lead, right? Yeah. And the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, like we kind of, they kind of, the publishers led with the glitz. Yes. But in fact, as they were reading the book, they really felt that Elfrida's story formed more of the backbone of the book. It was it more is, like yeah. the spiritual center of the yes. book. Yes. And when you said that, it just poured out of you. That made me think of like all these readers who just really love Elfrida. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, you know, they're so different with they're such different women and they have this one personal connection of this person that they sort of both pivot around but but what other ways do you see these two women as being similar well you know i this is one of my favorite things that i love to do is to have two women who on the surface seem very different you know one who's more quiet and introverted and almost a sort of tragic type of figure. And then one who is much more extroverted and out there and smart talking and knows her way around the world, but has a very actually vulnerable core. And and sort of how and, and I think it's because maybe, you know, I have a sister and we're very sort of different people in that way. So maybe this is just a yeah. theme that haunts me, uh, you know, throughout a lot of my <laughs> books. But I love doing that because I think that we as women are always you know, we ta- you know we're always putting these positions of competitiveness and judging each other, and uh, you know, yeah. and oh, you're weak because you're quiet, and you're strong because you're loud, and that's not true. And and so for me, it's really important to, you know, sort of bring together. I think our common experience as women, uh, particularly if you're looking into the past, you know, these. Uh, you know, that this sort of the social and, and cultural background that that we're we're all acting in. Uh, and so, uh, you know, someone like Elfrida, you know, she she is she is the moral backbone. She's kind of the spiritual heart of the yeah. story. Uh, and her struggle, I think, is kind of our struggle as women. Uh, and we discover, of course, that Lulu is hiding her own tragedy and her own secret and her own sort of dark space in her past. The fact that they're both struggling with these sort of dark uh, experiences, I think, uh, does bring them together in the end. And uh, it, you know, I, I, I hope my, my goal when I write, uh, because this is how I write, and I hope it's how people are reading it, is just slipping yourself inside the skin of another human being yeah. and understanding what it's like to live Uh, from that experience uh, as a different type of person, Mm -hmm. uh, as somebody who's not like you at all. You know, I think we we put so much emphasis on, oh, did I relate to this character? Well, my point is try. Right. That's what we're put on this earth to do, is to try to relate to people that are maybe unlike us so that we can understand each other a little better. I love that. you do that so beautifully in this book. Thank you so much for writing it. We loved it. Thank you so much for joining us in this interview. This was so much fun. I loved hearing just your point of view on the book. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Beatrice, for coming. Thank you for having me. That was Beatrice Williams, whose new book, The Golden Hour, is out now. To find out more about Beatrice's book and how to buy it, 
head to bookclubgirl.com, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast is to tell a friend. It really helps other people to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with S.A. Chakraborty about her epic novel, City of Brass. I love City of Brass. Oh my God. I can't wait obsessed. to talk with her. Totally obsessed. <laughs> you, our listeners, can also join the conversation if you've read City of Brass. And if you have a question for S.A. Chakraborty, post them in the comments on our Book Club Girl Facebook group. Or call us and leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We would love to hear from you. Before we go, a big thank you to Jordan goss Perret and to Kristen Meinzer, who produced today's episode. Also to Michael Bognar, the engineer for today's episode. To Jennifer Hart, the original Book Club Girl. And to Amelia Wood, the heart and soul behind the Book Club Girl Facebook group. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. I can't say why I woke an hour later. I should have slept like the dead, so sapped as I was. But they do say the brain is subject to certain stimuli that the common senses can't perceive. Whatever the reason. I startled awake, as I said, and experienced a moment of utter panic. I thought it was the wrong room, the wrong man that the past two years had been a dream from which I had just emerged. And if it hadn't been for the moonlight on Thorpe's rufous hair, blazing with an unnatural saturation of color, he might have found himself as dead as Mr. Randolph. As it was, I slumped back against the pillow and glanced out the window. And that was when I noticed the peculiar orange tinge to the horizon, which had turned Thorpe's hair such a vivid shade of ginger. I thought it couldn't be dawn already. Then I realized I was facing south, not east, and I pushed Thorpe's shoulder. Fire, I gasped. Thorpe bolted awake just as I had and stared at me in the same confusion I had felt, then the same recognition. I pointed to the window. He swore and leapt from the bed. Put on some clothes, he said running out the door at a terrible limp. I'll ring up Government House. By the time we reached Nassau, tearing across the harbor in Venner Grian's motorboat, the fire had engulfed part of Bay Street and was crawling up George Street. The air flew with cinder, swirled with smoke. I tasted it on my tongue, inside my nose. I jumped from the boat and helped Thorpe secure it to a piling, he snatched up his cane and hurried with me from the docks across Bay Street, where he grabbed my hand. Go home, he shouted. I shook my head. The Red Cross! He opened his mouth as if to yell back some objection, then thought better of it and kissed me instead, brief and hard. If the fire gets close, get the hell out, he said in my ear. I'm going to find the fire brigade. He released me, and I pulled my shirt Thorpe's shirt, over my mouth and nose, and plunged through these terrible gray-orange billows up George Street in the direction of the Red Cross building, where all our hard work lay in stacks and piles at the back of the building. All our supplies, our inventory, our parcels waiting to be sent overseas. I saw the Duke's station wagon outside, parked at a rakish angle, the back door swung open. Out in the street, 
four men were running a fire hose. They were sopping wet and covered with soot. One of them raised his head, and in shock I recognized the Duke of Windsor himself. I ran up the front steps and through the doorway, smack into Mrs. Gouteville, white-faced, carrying a bundle of wool blankets. Mrs. Randolph, quick, we're loading the car. She's in back. By she, Mrs. Gouteville meant Wallace, of course. I raced down the hall to the back room, our warehouse, and there she was, giving out crisp orders to Miss Drews and a couple of other ladies, stacking things in boxes, stacking boxes on each other. You might not have recognized her. She wore no cosmetics, no coiffure. Her thin lips were invisible against her skin. Her hair was in a net. Her dressing gown was belted around her waist. Only her familiar brown and white spectator shoes gave her away.